Good morning, Pillar DC. Uh, I want to encourage you to go ahead and grab a Bible, find, find a Bible somewhere in your living room or wherever you might be, and, and follow along with me this morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, uh, but we are going to be going into different parts of Scripture, and so it'd be helpful if you had a Bible to follow along. Uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Genesis, and today we're going to be looking at a passage that is really one of the biggest turning points in all of Scripture. And the Bible is one big story. It's the story of how God, the Creator, is renewing and restoring the creation that has been blemished by the sin and rebellion of human beings made in His image. And there are really four main kind of scenes in the, the storyline of the Bible, or four main uh, turning points uh, in the storyline of the Bible. There's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so creation kind of takes place in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So we've looked at, at creation, at the first act of the story of the Bible in the first two weeks of the series. And today we're going to be in act number two, which is the fall. And that takes place in Genesis chapter 3. And, and then uh, after the fall, the, the act of redemption, really, that takes up the majority of the Bible. From Genesis 4 all the way to Revelation chapter 20, we see God's plan of redemption unfolding. And then in, in Revelation 21 and 22, we see Acts 4, which is kind of a picture and a glimpse into restoration, the final act, the future that we have to look forward to that God is creating. And so Today, we're going to be in Act 2. We're going to be looking at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we need to understand the fall. And we need to understand where sin comes from, what sin is, and what its results are. In other words, we need to understand why redemption was even necessary, why we need a restoration. So we're going to read uh, all of Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. Again, I'd encourage you to follow along in uh, with your Bible there at home. And the words will also be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. So let's read the Word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves into loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, 
She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father God, I pray right now that you would be with us, that you would help us, that you would open our eyes, open our ears to hear your word. Help us to humble ourselves before your word. And I pray that you would change us by your word. I pray for anyone listening this morning, O God, that doesn't know you, that has not experienced a salvation of your son, Jesus Christ, that has not been born again. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I pray today, God, that you would give the gift of faith, that you would open the eyes of the blind and that those who are lost, who are caught up in sin, who have been running from you, that today they would be saved, that they would believe, that their eyes would be opened. And I pray, God, that for those of us who are believers, for those of us who are followers of Christ, I pray that you would build us up by your word, that you would encourage us, that God, you would be exalted in our hearts. And I pray that you would help me as I preach. I desperately need your help. Lord, we are so weak. There's nothing we can do apart from you. We're not in control. That's so obvious and evident. God, we are desperately in need of your help and I need your help as I preach this morning. So Lord, we pray all of these things In the powerful name of Jesus, amen. So the book of Genesis was written by Moses to the people of Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness after God had rescued them from Egypt. So it's important to remember that that was the original intended audience of the book of Genesis. And like we said earlier, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the first two chapters, describes how God created everything good. And so at the end of Genesis chapter 2, really the scene that we get is one of perfection. 
So, you know, the Lord God has formed man and woman in his image. Uh, He's put them into the garden, uh, into a paradise where they have everything they could ever possibly need. He's gifted them with each other, with the gift of marriage. He's blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They have perfect communion with one another and with God. No separation. God even walked with them in the cool of the garden. And in Genesis 1.31, it says that God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Very good. Everything that God has made is good. Nothing between God and man. But to an Israelite who is hearing this story at the time, that would have sounded strange to hear that everything is good because they would have looked around them and, and asked, well, what happened? is to think about where they were at this point at this period in their history in the wilderness. Much of their experience was not good. They had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And then after that God had delivered them, but now they've been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 some odd years just stuck in the desert. And so they would have asked the question, what happened to God's good creation? And Genesis 3 helps to answer that question. And this is an especially relevant question for us today. I mean, it's pretty obvious right now as we look around us and the world is suffering through a pandemic to ask, what happened? The glorious and peaceful paradise that we see at the close of Genesis chapter 2 looks nothing like the world that we see around us today. But what went wrong and what hope is there? That's what Genesis 3 helps us to answer. So we're going to walk through this passage and we're going to see where sin comes from, what sin is, what sin does to our lives and to the world around us, and then what God is doing about it. Okay, so I uh, want to first draw your attention uh, to the trickery of Satan. So the trickery of Satan. So in verse 1, we're introduced to the serpent. In Genesis 3, uh, 1, it says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And while this passage doesn't explicitly use the name Satan for the serpent, uh, the rest of Scripture clearly understands the serpent to be Satan. I want to be clear at the outset that Satan does not have the power to make you sin. And maybe you've uh, heard that phrase before, the devil made me do it, right? Well, uh, the reality is, is that that's not possible. The devil cannot make you sin. The devil can't make you do anything. Uh, James chapter 1 verse 14 says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So sin comes from your own desires, but Satan can and he does tempt, um, In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul reminds Christians of how they once lived in sin. And he says that we were all at one time following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. So we see in that passage there that Satan encourages us to sin. So he, it says we were following the prince of the power of the air. So we were following his leading and his enticements and his temptations. But at the end of the day, what does it say we were doing? We were carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. It's our own sinful desires that we follow. That's what sin is. So the devil didn't make us do it. 
Now, if there's one word, though, to describe Satan, it's the word liar. Jesus uh, said in John 8, 44 of Satan, he said, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan uses deception, suggestion, uh, temptation, and, and he just flat out lies to tempt us to listen to our own sinful desires instead of God. And we can even see a clear pattern in this passage of the progression of temptation and sin. And look at what Satan does to Eve. First, he casts doubt on what God has clearly said. He, he asks a question. He says, did God actually say? So he's suggesting to Eve that God's command is unreasonable. He puts doubt into her mind about what God really intended. And God has given us his word so that we can clearly know him and clearly know what he said. And yet how often do we hear things like, well, I know that the Bible clearly says this, but I'm not sure that applies to our culture or our context today. Today it means something different than it did then. You know, one example of this is Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But how many people have bought the lie today that, that Jesus didn't really mean what he says, what it seems that he means in that verse? What the serpent says in response to John 14, 6 is, surely God is not so exclusive. Surely if somebody means well and if, if he or she is a good person, even if they're following a different religion, then they'll go to heaven. God will understand Jesus didn't really mean to be exclusive. He's not, he doesn't mean that you have to trust in me alone for salvation. That's not what that verse means. You see the deception? That's the voice of Satan. And he, and he would have you believe this because he hates you and because he hates God and he wants to destroy you. And he knows that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And so he would love to convince you that there are other ways. So Satan casts doubt on what God has clearly said, and he also twists what God has clearly said. He Listen to what Satan says to Eve. He says, did God really say you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? Well, that's deception. Of course God didn't say that. We know God didn't say that. In fact, God said you may eat of any tree in the garden except for one tree. Now Eve does, to her credit, at least at this point, she corrects the serpent But his motives are evident. He's driving a wedge between Eve and God. The serpent is insinuating that God is being unreasonable and even unkind to Eve. And he's suggesting that Adam and Eve would be better off on their own. But then we get to verse 4 and the gloves really come off. Listen to what the serpent says. He says, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So what's, what's the serpent really saying here? He's saying God's just making an empty threat. He knows you will be like him if you eat of the tree. That's why he told you that. You're not really going to die. God is not good. God is lying to you. That's, that's the message the serpent is delivering to Eve here. And this is a flat-out lie. Sin does, in fact, lead to death. There are consequences for sin, despite what Satan may try to tell you. 
And he also deceives Eve with a half-truth here. It's true that by eating the fruit, Adam and Eve may know good from evil, but it's not going to make them more like God. In fact, what's, what's ironic here is that they already were like God. They were created in the image of God. And in fact, by eating the fruit of the tree that God told them not not to, it's making them profoundly less like God. Because now it's putting them at odds with God. They are disobeying God. It's so important to be able to distinguish between God's voice and the serpent's voice. Because he's he's deceptive. Uh, The New Testament says that he comes as an angel of light. Satan's not just going to go up, show up and say, what's up guys, I'm Satan and I'm here to try to deceive you. That's not going to happen, right? He's going to position himself as, uh, as an angel of light. But his voice always casts doubt on God's clear word. That's one of the ways that you can recognize it. God's commands are given to you for your good. Now, Satan wants to turn you away from God's commands because he hates God and he hates you, and he wants to destroy you. And that's why, brothers and sisters, it's so important to know God's word. Psalm 119.11, the psalmist says, Your word I have hid in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Hide God's word in your heart. Use this time. If you've got extra time in your schedule, and even if you don't have extra time in your schedule, and you're busier than you've ever been, Find a way to spend more time in God's word in the coming weeks. Find a way to hide it in your heart. There's all sorts of ways you can do that, but know God's word so that you can distinguish between his voice and the voice of the serpent. Now, unfortunately, every single one of us has given in to sin. We all at one time have believed the lie of the serpent. And every one of us has turned our backs on God, starting with Adam and Eve. And next, I want to uh, turn your attention to the treachery of sin. The treachery of sin. Sin, in its essence, is treason against God. It's rebellion. In Genesis 1 and 2, God made humans in His image and He entrusted them to care for creation. In Genesis 2.15, it says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So God gave Adam and Eve everything they could ever need and want, and then he entrusted, he, he has entrusted us to care for creation, to exercise dominion over creation. But listen to what happens. Listen to what Adam and Eve do in verses 6 and 7. It says that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So instead of exercising dominion over creation, they submitted to it by listening to the serpent. They betrayed God's trust and worshiped what God had made instead of God. And that is the essence of sin it is loving or treasuring. Anything that God has made more than God himself. Romans chapter 1 verses 24 and 25 clearly makes this point. The Apostle Paul writes of sinful humanity, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. When we consider the question of what went wrong in the world and what is wrong in our lives, we don't need to look any further for the answer. The answer is sin. God created us to worship Him and to be in a relationship with Him. He provided everything we needed and gave us good things to enjoy, but every single one of us has turned against God and chosen to treasure the creation over the Creator. Sin is the failure to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it often manifests itself in failing to love our neighbor who's made in the image of God. You know, when you wrong your neighbor, you are wronging an image bearer of God. This is why sin is so offensive to God. God is holy and God is just. And there are very serious consequences for sin. And verses 8 to 24 tell us exactly what those consequences are. They show us the tragedy of separation. The tragedy of separation. The fallout from sin is truly catastrophic. All sorts of relationships are broken as a result, starting with a broken relationship with God. Look what happens in verse 8. As soon as Adam and Eve have sinned, it says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And that may be one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. Man, who once walked unhindered and in perfect fellowship with God, is now hiding and ashamed. It's because sin separates us from God. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, It is your sin that has separated you from God. God put Adam and Eve in the garden in paradise where He walked with them and He talked with them. But as a result of sin, God banished them from the garden and from His presence. That's what we see at the end of Genesis chapter 3 in verses 23 and 24 where it says that he drove man out of the garden. He put a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the entrance to the garden. Paradise has now been lost. And if a broken relationship with God wasn't bad enough, sin also causes a broken relationship with people. And listen how quickly Adam and Eve turn on one another in verses 11 to 13. So God uh, uh, says to Adam and Eve, he says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And what does the man do? He immediately points the finger. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree and I ate. He's even kind of blaming God. He's like, this is all your fault, God. Though, you know, that woman, God, that you gave me to be the helper. Well, some help she is, she gave me this fruit. Now look what I've done. And then, and then he says to the woman, he says, what is this that you've done? And what does the woman do? She points to the serpent. Hey, it's not my fault. The serpent deceived me and I ate. I, I shouldn't be held accountable for this. I was tricked. You know, one of the ugly side effects of sin is that in our attempt to cover it up, we will hurt other people if we have to. You know, husbands and wives, just think about how quickly we are to blame our spouse when things go wrong, if we get into a, a, a squabble at the house or we get into a, a fight over this or that and we get defensive, right? And we dig in to our trenches and we point the finger. 
our first instinct really usually doesn't tend towards humility, does it? Sin has ugly consequences. It brings shame into our relationship with God because we feel the need to cover up and hide who we truly are. We, we have a fear of being exposed. That's why they were no longer okay being naked and they felt like they had to hide and to cover up because all of a sudden there's this fear of being exposed, of being seen, of being known. And it brings shame, it brings, uh, it brings shame into our relationship with God and it brings blame into our relationship with people because we, we go off into these desperate attempts to try to get the spotlight off of me and onto somebody else. And one of our favorite things to do as people is to play the comparison game. Most people think that they're a good person because compared to, you know, uh, are some of the worst people out there, uh, they're a pretty moral person, right? If I can, I can always find somebody that I can compare myself to who's worse morally than me. Do you see what we're doing when we do that? It's just a way of pointing the finger. It's saying, don't look at me, look at him. They're way worse than I am. She's way worse than I am. But not only will that not fly in God's court, it's also unloving. It's judgmental. And it refuses to take responsibility for one's own sin. You know, sin even causes a broken relationship with creation. Even causes a broken relationship with creation. In verses 16 to 19, God cursed the ground and told the woman she would have pain in childbirth. And he told the man that he would work the ground by the sweat of his brow. In other words, pain and hardship entered into the world. And the creation now fights back, in a sense, as we uh, try to uh, exercise dominion over it. This would be a really helpful time for us to pause here a moment and to reflect upon our current moment with the coronavirus pandemic. It's often asked when plagues or natural disasters sweep through a population whether or not it's the judgment of God. And while we don't always know in each specific situation whether uh, a specific disaster or something like that is the judgment of God, what we do know is that all suffering is a result of the fall. Now, that does not mean that every natural disaster or disease is the direct result of a specific person's sin or a specific nation's sin. Because, you know, obviously from our vantage point, there are times when it seems like the wicked get away with it. You know, the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. For a time, that may be, but it won't always be that way. A judgment day is coming where God is going to right every single wrong. And it's also important to remember that Romans 3.10 says that no one is righteous. No, not one. So no one deserves to be blessed by God. In fact, the wages of our sin, what we deserve for our sin, Romans 6.23 says, is death. So Romans chapter 8 explains that God has subjected the world to futility. He's pronounced a curse upon creation. That's what we see God doing here in Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. And out of that curse comes bad backs and disabilities and arthritis and hurricanes and famine and pandemics. 
but God has not subjected creation to these things to, to get back at us for our sin. It's not a punitive action. Listen to what Romans 8, 20 and 21 says. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what we see there is that God, again, didn't subject the world to futility as a punitive action, though we do deserve punishment, but so that creation could be set free. By subjecting creation to this futility, by just the very existence of things like natural disasters and pandemics and, and back aches and, uh, and all sorts of, of, of troubling things in our lives, whenever those things come up, it's a reminder to us that things are not as they should be. Every natural disaster, every cancer diagnosis, every infectious disease outbreak is meant as a reminder that this world is broken and it needs a rescuer. We need one who will come and make a new heaven and a new earth. And one, and most importantly, we need one who can come and reconcile us to God. And even amidst God's cursing of creation, though, in Genesis chapter 3, I want to point out to you that God's grace is still evident. God's judgment on sin in Genesis 3 is tempered by his grace, and it always is. God's blessing upon humanity of fruitfulness through childbearing still stands, though it's now going to come through the pain of childbirth. God's provision of food is still going to happen. He still sends rain. He still provides food, though now it will come through the pain of toil and labor by the sweat of our brow. And the brightest ray of sunshine that comes through in Genesis chapter 3 is found there in verse 15. Even in the midst of God pronouncing a curse upon creation for sin, listen to what the Lord says in verse 15. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is often called the Proto-Evangelion, which means uh, it's, uh, two, it's, it's, it's two Greek words. So Proto is first, Evangelion is gospel. So it's the first telling of the gospel. It's the first prophecy of a coming Savior, the first telling of the good news. It points forward to the triumph of the Savior, to the triumph of the Savior. It is the first prophecy in Scripture where we see it pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah. So God tells the serpent that a descendant will come from the woman. And the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. And so in this prophecy, God reveals how he will crush the serpent and recreate the paradise that was lost through the seed of the woman, reversing the curse. So the question is, is who is this seed? Who is this descendant of the woman? Well, the book of Genesis traces the line of Adam uh, to Noah. And then we get to Genesis 12 where we see Abraham. We're introduced to Abraham. And God chose Abraham and gave him the covenant promise. I just, I really want you guys to follow with me here as I kind of take you through this thread. This is, is so incredible, so cool 
uh, just what God does here. So he tells Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So fast forward 400 years later, and the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, are enslaved in Egypt. God delivers them out of Egypt. He rescues them, and he promises to bring them into the land of Canaan. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's, a, it's like a shadow or a type of Eden. So God is saying, I'm promising to, to dwell amongst you and to be with you in this land where I'll provide everything you need, flowing with milk and honey. God does that, but Israel fails to keep the law of God. They continue to rebel just like Adam. They continue to sin against God. And so just like Adam and Eve in Eden, God expelled Israel from the promised land and they were taken into exile. And yet, once again, God still did not forsake his promise. Even in the midst of exile, the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 65, 17 and verses 24 and 25, listen to what God promises the people of Israel in exile. He says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Meaning that he's going to be with his people, so close to them, so with them, that before the words even come out of our mouths, he knows he's right there with us. No more separation. He goes on to say, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. This is an incredible passage. Just in this passage here, we've got a promise of a recreation. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So there's a reversal of the effects of the fall. There's going to be no more separation from God. No more enmity between God and man. He will be with us. And and now we know as believers, He's not just with us. He's in us. He dwells in us by His Holy Spirit. There's no more enmity between people. The Lord says, they shall not hurt in all my holy mountain. And there's no more enmity and no more uh, conflict between creation and man. The, the, The wolf and the lamb graze together. And then the serpent is defeated and judged. Did you see that? Even in Isaiah 65, it says, dust shall be the serpent's food. God will get victory over the serpent, over the evil one. How is all this possible? Who is the seed who crushed the head of the serpent, who brings this incredible prophecy to fruition? His name is Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God, and He came to dwell among us. He was born of a woman, of the Virgin Mary. He was fully God and yet fully man. And this is amazing. To rescue sinners and to restore creation, God took on flesh, and he stepped into this cursed creation. He hungered and he thirsted and he endured hardship and temptation right along with us. But he also kept the law perfectly. He was in perfect fellowship and communion with the Father. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And yet, despite his perfection and his purity, he subjected himself to the curse of sin, to death. Jesus died on the cross, tasting death, the death that you and I deserved. He took the punishment 
in our place for our sin, for everyone who places their faith and their trust in him. On the cross, he paid our debt in full. And once it had been paid, three days later, he rose from the dead. There's nothing that can keep him in the grave anymore because the debt is paid in full. And most of you know, uh, if you've been coming to Pillar DC for any uh, length of time, one of my favorite passages is Colossians 2, 13 to 15, where it says this. It says, and you, Christian, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus triumphed over the serpent on the cross. Satan is unable to thwart God's plan of salvation for his people, though he may try. At the cross, God demonstrated how he could be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. And he has secured for us eternal life. Upon his return, Jesus will make all things new. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. In Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, in that chapter we get a glimpse of the future that awaits believers. And this is written by John to encourage believers. And I just want to to read you a few verses from Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5 here. Here's what it says. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And then let's skip ahead to verse 14. It says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Wow. Now for non-believers... This is an invitation to wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. That means to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection and not your works for salvation. It means to fully trust your life to Jesus as King. I urge you to do that right here and right now where you sit. The way that you do that is first, you must plead guilty. You must acknowledge that you need saving that you've rebelled against God and that you deserve to be separated from Him. You deserve an eternity in hell. Then you must confess your sin to God. You don't need to hide from God like Adam and Eve did in the garden. If you come to God in humility and in repentance, you will not be met by God's wrath. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Instead of being met with wrath, you'll be met with unending mercy. 
because Jesus took the wrath of God in your place. Only confess your sins and believe in Him. I'm pleading with you, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, at, right there at your home, whether you're in your living room or your kitchen or you're, you're in your car or you're watching this on your phone, please do this today. Please don't put it off. This pandemic is a reminder that we do not know what tomorrow will bring. Don't put it off. You don't know if you have tomorrow. You don't know if you have an hour from now. You don't know that God may require your life of you tonight. Don't put this decision off. So please, I'm I'm pleading with you, repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus and and then reach out to us. Let us know if you've made that decision. Message us on Facebook or you can email myself, jared at pillarchurchspc.com. Reach out to me on Facebook and let us know that you've made that decision so that we can help you begin to grow in discipleship, so that we can help you learn to follow Jesus. But please, whatever you do, don't put this decision off any longer. And for believers, the scene in Revelation 22 means that though we are not in paradise restored yet, it's coming. The creation still groans in futility as we also do as believers. But every groan, whether that groan is caused by a pandemic or by back pain or by poverty, Every single groan is a reminder that Jesus is coming soon, that this too is going to pass, that it's not going to be like this forever. Painful things like pandemics, just it, it spurs us and prompts us to call out, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It makes us long for home where there will be no more pain, no more sickness, no more disease, and no more separation from God. We will see Him face to face. I love 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. It says, These light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Christians, we can rejoice in the midst of pandemics and lay our lives down for others because Revelation 22 is our future. So because of the future glory that awaits us, we're free not to run away from danger, not to run away from pandemics, but we can run into a pandemic. We can run towards the suffering. We can run towards people that need help with fearlessness because we've got a secure future. We know where our future lies. We know that we have eternal life. So we don't have to hoard things. We don't have to go and scramble at the grocery store to try to hoard up supplies. We can give them away. We can show radical, sacrificial love. Most likely, harder days are going to be ahead for us in the next couple of weeks. But we don't need to fear them. Instead, Let's be ready to offer the hope of the gospel to people who desperately need it. Let's be ready to meet practical needs as we share with people how the Son of God has come and He has crushed the head of the serpent and He is coming back to put a final end to things like coronavirus. That's the sure future and hope we have to look forward to. Amen. Let me pray. God, we thank You so much for this 
incredible promise and this incredible word. And we thank you, O God, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to reverse the effects of the fall, to give life to people who deserve death. And oh God, I pray that everyone who hears my voice today, that not a single person would walk away from this time and and not place their faith and trust in you, Jesus. May you grant the gift of faith. May you right now quicken them to belief. Right now where they are, would you change their eternity? Would you change their future forever? And would you encourage your people? Give us fearlessness and boldness. Give us a joy even in the midst of suffering as we reflect upon the incredible future that awaits us. Jesus, we praise you as the lamb who was slain, who is raised, and who is seated on the throne. And we cannot wait to be in your presence singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and power and dominion now and before all time and forever and ever. So we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in your powerful Precious, holy name. Amen.